Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Session, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Brad Snyder. In 2011, Brad was completely blinded by an IED while serving for the U.S. Navy in Afghanistan. He returned to the pool for rehab and exactly one year later won his first Paralympic gold for the U.S. Brad is now a five-time Paralympic gold medalist training for the Tokyo Games this summer. He is also a current board member of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Welcome, Brad. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really glad to be here and excited to have a conversation with you as well. So I thought that we, I would start on a more personal note of when I met you, not to age either of us, so I'll say it, <laughs> a few years it was ago. very recently. <laughs> very recently, just the other day. You and I were both speaking for the Olympic and Paralympic Committee at a private school in Connecticut about the values of being an athlete. And I remember getting to hear a little bit about your story. And I think what I've never forgotten and I've shared a few times since is your hack at figuring out how to get the right amount of toothpaste on your toothbrush. <laughs> and I was waiting for the answer. And, and you're just like, no, I, I just squirt the toothpaste directly into my mouth. And I thought that was genius. And I have to say, I do that about 50% of the time now. So that, that's direct from you. I, I was really interested to see what would come out of your mouth. Like the lasting impact of what I said that day was the toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Sorry, the higher lessons were, um, no, no, I'm just kidding. didn't, yeah, didn't stand I, I, out as much. <laughs> I used that kind of, I think, you know, with that, that nested in that somewhat superficial story is a, is a great way to, uh, the reason I make jokes like that is, is to make disability and, and specifically in my case blindness a lot more approachable something that you find when uh you know for me I wasn't born with my disability I incurred it later on in life through trauma as you as you refer reference in the bio and so I was kind of you know the juxtaposition of being able-bodied and fully capable and then now being disabled was very prominent in my life and one of the big things I noticed is that people are very uncomfortable with how to communicate uh, about or around your disability. My, my sister asked me directly early on in my recovery, does it bother you when I say I'll see you later? Because it's just a sort of colloquial term that we don't really think much about, but she was sensitive to the fact that maybe that might bother me having just lost my vision and things like that. Now, uh, you know, for me personally, none of that stuff bothered me from the beginning. And, and I was acutely aware of the fact that my now you know, my injury and my th my thus disability was making people uncomfortable. I just started making jokes about it as quickly as possible to really put people at ease, to get them to understand, like, it's okay. I'm okay with this. You should be okay with this. We can talk about it. There's a language we can use and so on and so forth. And so I, I talk about the, the toothpaste. And the story there was when I was going through blind rehab, which is a it's a fancy way of saying kind of like, I, I liken it to Hogwarts for blind people. You know, the VA has this school down in Augusta, Georgia, where you go and they give you all these tools and these little, you know, little hacks about how to live blind and how to make things easier. And I kept thinking that there would be some magic tricks, like here's how blind people do X and here's how blind people do Y. And it turns out there's, there's really not a whole lot of magic. And one of the things I was really struggling with at the beginning was little things like figuring out what color shirt I would had on and trying to get toothpaste on the end of the toothbrush. I, I use that as just like something we don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis. That became a major struggle for me, not being able to see either the toothpaste or the toothbrush. And so after a couple of weeks in blind rehab, my a mentor, a blind mentor of mine was teaching me how to use the computer, of which I was able to pick up pretty quickly. And he asked Brad, you know, what's what's your biggest struggle, you know, now that you've been blind for a little while? And I said, Ron, you know, I'm just really having a hard time getting the right amount of toothpaste on the toothbrush. And he said, well, that one's an easy one. You just squirt the toothpaste into your mouth directly, and then you don't have to worry about getting it into the sink. And I said, well, you know, Ron, that's a great idea. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I have to say it's very handy, even if you can see, because mm -hmm. half the time I like half miss my uh, toothbrush anyways. Yeah, Again, your first thing in the morning, haven't had the coffee yet. Exactly, exactly. Something else that really struck me when I first met you and remi am reminded of today is just your voice, your intonation, your just this element of positivity and can do. And I was wondering if you've you've always been like this or was there something that you kind of learned along the way, whether it was at the Naval Academy or your time in the armed forces or or training as a Paralympian that's made you optimistic, resilient. It's incredibly inspirational. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think I, I do have a 
I, I don't know, a natural inclination to be positive, but then it was very much nurtured while I was growing up. Uh, I think I recall a, a story I visited. My, my mom was a, a night nurse. She was a neonatal intensive care nurse for a long time. And she used to do these little the little gimmicks that we know, like Pampered Chef or like, you know, they used to call them Rubbermaid Tupperware parties or whatever. And she would sell the Pampered Chef stuff to work. And if, as a result, she'd get some free stuff for her kitchen or whatever. So I used to go down to her, her hospital and help her pass out the goods that she had sold to her friends. And I get, I'd get to see her. It was like a, a really cool opportunity as a kid to see mom at work. You know, you'd always see her going off to work in her scrubs, but she didn't really know what she did for 12 hours. And she'd come back awfully tired. And, you, you know, obviously something had happened, but you didn't know. Being able to go into the nursery with her and see her with all of her uh, colleagues doing the things that they were doing, saving these incredibly small babies, keeping them alive for, you know, uh, in, 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 a, in a situation where they're very close to death, I guess. And I was just in awe. And there was this one story in particular where I'm walking around with my mom passing out these things. And there's this this guy, uh, you know, really working really hard to go around and collect the garbage from all the different rooms. He's the janitor. And for most of the people on that uh, on that uh, in that ward or whatever, the janitor was essentially invisible. Nobody really stopped to give him the time of day. And my mom was the first one to run over and say, "Hey, Edgar, how's it going?" And he just lit up when my mom recognized him, and they started up a conversation. And uh, he was just really excited to have that interaction with my mom. And my mom was really always the one to show, like you know, everything, every person, every moment, every. Every everything we engage with in the, in the in the world is a really you know is a, is a gift, and every moment is something to cherish and to make the most of, and that's something I've learned from her from a, from a, from a long time ago. And then I was a I was a distance swimmer, you know, growing up, and distance swimming is really miserable, especially back then where we were swimming miles and miles and miles in the pool every morning, and then going back at night, and then going there for Saturday practice. And when you take it that seriously, it's just it really it can be a it can be a, a mental wasteland or you can turn it into something fun and you know instead of going oh i don't want to do a hundred hundreds you got like oh i'm excited to do this set very few people have ever done this set and me and my buddy robert we're going to tackle this together and that's the way that not only do you get through that sort of stuff but you get better as a result so i think you know through my mom my family and my sports those those lessons have all sort of been imbued at an early age and then definitely in the military that those lessons come to the forefront. The military has a way of taking really, really fun stuff and making it unfun unless you have the right mental attitude. Uh, things like scuba diving and skydiving can be really fun until you do it in the military and you're diving in really uh, silty and gross water and you're skydiving with a bunch of gear on, a rucksack and a weapon and all that sort of stuff. It can, those those moments can be really miserable unless you have the right mental attitude. And so in so many ways, all of those lessons sort of uh, aggregated when I went blind and I, it really was, it became like the next challenge. Instead of learning how to jump out of a plane, I was learning how to be blind and it didn't feel like an unfamiliar loop. I've been through that loop before. You know, you make the most of every moment, you adopt a positive perspective, you figure out the tools, tactics, and procedures you need to, you know, uh, gain an advantage in the situation and you just move on like that. And, and that's largely how it became, how it, how it, how it trans, transgressed for myself and my family. <laughs> It's, it's a great reminder. I think we all inherently know that, but we we get a little jaded and beat down with the kind of mundane responsibilities of life. Okay. And it's it's really a reminder that our world is how we see it and not necessarily objectively how it is, how we choose to respond to our circumstances. I wanted to, to go back to kind of a specific time, and this was also a story I remember we, we discussed when you were, I believe when you were in Afghanistan and it w- was kind of this frantic time, like the moments before you you stepped on the IED that, that resulted in your blindness. And I'm, I was wondering what was going through your, your mind. I just, I can't imagine so much happening so fast and in an instant, you know, the kind of the course of your life changed, ultimately setting you up to do some really incredible things. But I, I, I think that specific moment I'm very curious at what was going through your head. Well, right before, uh, you know, you're in a really kind of scary environment. Uh, we were working in an area called the Panjway Valley of Afghanistan. And at the at the time, it was the summer or, you know, into the fall of 2011. And the a really prevalent tactic of the Taliban at the time was to utilize improvised explosive devices in, a, in abundance all over areas that they knew that we wanted to operate. 
Uh, and the goal there was just to deter U.S. and coalition forces from going into these areas. Uh, and then that, in essence, was my job as an explosive ordnance disposal person. That's my subject matter expertise. My, go- my job was the mitigation or, or alternatively the avoidance of these improvised explosive devices. So we have these patrols. Our job was to train and, and enable Afghan special forces commandos to be able to do these missions where they're looking for security threats, i.e. the Taliban in and around the Kandahar area. So we have to go into these areas. So my job was to make uh, make that as safe as possible for the group of our, our, our good guy patrol, which was you know anywhere from 30 to 40 people, uh, a lot of Americans, some SEALs, some Army Special Forces guys, and then uh, upwards of 20 to maybe 30 Afghan commandos. So Afghan, Afghans trying to serve their country and trying to make their country a safer place and so on and so forth. Um, and what's, what a lot of people don't realize about the combat environment is a lot of it can be very boring and a lot of it is very uncomfortable. You're walking around long distances with a lot of weight on. It's very hot outside. Uh, we, the, the terrain there is not so permissive and we really don't like to walk on the roads and pathways because that's where most of the IEDs are. So we're frequently hiking over walls and through these really, you know, big fields of, of, these grape fields and the way grapes grow in Afghanistan are on these four foot tall mounds. So sometimes you're going up a four foot tall mound, down a four foot tall mound, up a four foot tall mound. And it's just really like, you're just very tired. You're frustrated. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're all of the, 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 the negative ease, I guess. So a lot of combat is that then all of a sudden something happens and all of a sudden your mind is racing about what are all the things that it could be that morning. It was a blast plume that shot up into the air and, I thought that it was one of my patrol had stepped on an IED, which is actually exactly what had happened. But I thought it was my buddy, Adam. Uh, so I was initially, you know, kind of emotionally ripped apart over That might be my friend up there who needs my help. Um, but we, 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 we talk about this in, in the, you know, the mission planning beforehand. One of the worst things you can do is run right to the spot of the incident because frequently there's more problems than one. There might be a counterattack. There might be someone shooting at us. There might be... Maybe it wasn't an IED from the ground. It was a mortar coming in from the air. So the worst thing I can do is run to where they've got a dialed-in mortar position. So I've got to really sit back and think for a moment. What what are all the different things that could be happening right now? What's likely to happen? And then what's likely to happen next after that? So you try to be like a chess player. What's the next couple things that are going to happen? And how do I anticipate those threats and mitigate those threats? Meanwhile, I'm really worried that that might be my friend up there. So your emotions start to run wild, your brain starts to run wild, and we use this framework called threat assessment. You take all the possible variables out there, all the possible threats, and you sort of rank them. What is the most threatening thing out there right now? Uh, and for, for most of us and for all of us, at, at all times, it's the IED that you don't know where it is. And so in that situation, we tell everyone in the assault team, stay where you are. Just go to a knee, stay low, look around, make sure we're not going to get shot at. And my job was to run up to the incident and start to clear around with my metal detector to make sure there are no IEDs around whoever's hurt. I was pretty happy to get up there and see my buddy Adam was okay. He was perfectly he was perfectly fine, and he was very confused as to what happened because he didn't see where the blast was. But then uh, things went down south quickly when we saw that the what had happened was an Afghan, one of our good guy Afghan commandos, had stepped on an IED, really badly hurting himself and the guy standing behind him. So we have two really badly hurt commandos that we're trying to save. And uh, so, so part of my part of my emotions go down because I know Adam's okay, but then I see this other person who's really hurt, potentially dying, that I have to try to get them to safety as quickly as possible. But also there's these other 40 people who now can't move really because we're dealing with these casualties. And if we start to get attacked right now, we're going to be pinned down. And all these thoughts start to escalate to you really fast and your adrenaline starts pumping. And I think, you know, I think, I think, that's what ended up sort of being the undoing of me as I was moving a little bit too fast. I should have slowed down. I should have moved a little bit more carefully because on my way to helping the second casualty after we got the first one cleared back to a place where we could land the helicopter, that's where I, st- I stepped on the second IED. And then it's, it's really strange because immediately following the blast, you just lay there. And for me, my experience was like, it was so as though someone put a, a pause button on the movie of my life. Like it was just like pause everything was quiet. And I started to, that's when I was able to like, think about, think about all of my life and think about what had happened. And all of a sudden, a moment ago, it was like super fast. Now it's super slow. And I thought about everything. I, I thought I was dead. I thought I'd 
was going to pass over to whatever happens after you die. And I had a lot of time in my mind to think about that and reconcile that and accept that. And that's really a, a, a really powerful aspect of this whole story. I think a lot of people look at the narrative and look at the bio and say, oh, it's, a, it's incredible that you overcame blindness. But for me, it was blindness came later. It was the overcoming death that was really the prominent part of the whole story at the beginning. I thought that I had died. And then about you know 30 seconds later, my buddy Adam came and scraped me off the ground and got me up and got me walking to a helicopter where I continued my life from that point. And you said it at the beginning of this question, you said it changed my life forever. It absolutely did. But it, not necessarily in the way that everyone sort of thinks it does. I think everyone looks at that moment as the day I lost my vision. But for me, in many ways, it's the day that I got a second chance, you know? I can imagine we get so used to our senses and our patterns. We take things for granted. And that when you you lose a sense or you have such such a pivotal experience such as as you did, that it really changes how you maybe view your own life, your experiences to date, what you've taken for granted. And I'm sure kind of every every other sense that you have has just been heightened and sharpened and you've just had to kind of almost learn what it's like to be to to be a functioning human all over again. And I imagine doing that consciously as a 20-something year old is, is very different than, you know, kind of as we learn as as yeah. toddlers. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And in, in so many ways, it was a rebirth in, 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 in nearly every aspect that you just talked about. Uh, I had to learn how to how to be blind and how to exist in the world, both uh, with the capabilities that I have, but also in a world that's really designed for people who have eyes. You know, the the way everyone gets around is by getting in their car and driving and looking at their GPS and looking at their computer and looking at their phone. There's a lot of a lot of the world that is not designed for people like me. So learning all of those things was completely new. But again, that that was very tactical. The rest of it was rebirth in uh, I had a whole another identity. You know, I, I came back and had a different outlook on life. I was not obviously going to be able to do the same job, so I needed to shift jobs. I, uh, you know, my a lot of my identity was built around you know who I was in the military, and, and now needing to shift that was more than just a vocation. It was more than just a job. It was really like who who am I and what what am I trying to do? Um, and a lot of those answers were still largely question marks when I started the Paralympic journey. And that's why I'm, you know, really in, in a lot of different ways, so grateful for the Paralympics because it, it allowed me to sort of have something to, to anchor my, my new development curve to something I knew, something I was familiar with that whole go to swim practice on Saturday morning and swim a bunch of laps and try to get faster. I knew that loop. I knew that environment. And while I was doing that, I was kind of working my way through all of those other transitions that you alluded to. <laughs> I think most people don't realize this, but you you swam as a as a form of rehabilitation after the explosion. And w- was it exactly one year after losing your sight you were competing, hearing thousands cheer for you uh, as you oh, stood yeah. on the podium in London? I mean, how surreal was that moment? And and what was that that year leading up to the your Paralympic uh, gold medal like? All of it was so surreal, especially, you know, living a, living the military life. You know, this has been an interesting 20-something years, the, the 9-11 generation and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of like getting into studying that as a, a potential, you know, I'm, I just got my master's. I'm working on my PhD in this particular area and trying to figure out what what is this experience all about. And I would say it was in many ways, sort of a dark experience. You know, I, a lot of us are deployed all the time. There's not, there's not a really healthy work-life balance in the military. And it's a big strain on families. It's a big strain on kind of the moral composition of anybody who's deployed to and, and had any kind of combat experience. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough life. It's a really, really tough life. And then to emerge out of that somewhat tough life into this sort of glittery, amazing sort of Disney Channel year where things just started lining up in an incredible way was surreal to the max. Like the word surreal doesn't even really encompass what that year felt like. And the timeline, as you said, was it was like an even crazier. Like I started it as rehab, but there were f- people in my life who sort of had designs on 
you know, you might be able to go to the Paralympics this year. And I, I remember people saying that and said, I think that that's a ways off. Like, I'd love to get to the pool and I'd love to swim back and forth and splash the water. And won't that be a nice feeling? But there was a sense of urgency on, on other people, uh, on the, on the behalf of other people in my, in my life. And I'm thankful that there was because we really made the deadlines for everything just by, just by weeks. You know, I, I had to get, you know, paperwork filed and I had to have a, an IPC, an International Paralympic Committee sanctioned doctor or official or something come and look at my my fake eyes and be like, yep, this dude's legitimately blind. And you get the little stamp that says you're an S11. And I had to do that. And I had to go get a time. And I made all of those little boundaries just by the just by weeks. And I actually started the whole journey while I was still in rehab. I was in that Augusta VA uh, doing like in the morning, I would do mobility training where I'd, I'd, I'd be working with a, a rehab counselor or therapist on how to use my cane to blind cane walk, you know, in, in, in the hospital at first and then out on the street and down sidewalks and learning how to cross the street safely and all that stuff. And then at lunchtime, I would go swim at swim practice. And then after a few weeks of practice, I went to the OTC in Colorado Springs and swam in a meet. And I swam what I thought was an absolutely garbage 50 freestyle. And I got out and everyone's like, that was amazing. Like you made the national team standard. Like this is great news. And I was like, national team standard. You know, in, in my able-bodied career, I had a good swimming career and I had some really great races and I did some things that I was really proud of. I won a collegiate race against Army one year, my one collegiate win, and that was a great moment. But I was used to being the hardly top 16, hardly top eight, you know, to be uh, ranked number five in the world or be on the national team was something completely foreign to me, you know? That sounds that sounds like an incredible year. I wanted to touch on something in your training and it, it's, I actually went to school with uh, many veterans. It was a program that Eisenhower created after World War II for for vets at at Columbia, and I always trade uh, training stories of who trained harder. You know, did I train harder for the Olympics, or you know, how hard did they train to prepare for their their tours of duty? And um, and they trained harder, <laughs> but but I wanted to ask you how you would compare your training that prepared you for the military and your training as a Paralympian. Like, what are what are the most similar aspects of it and what things are just completely different? You know, I don't know that I agree that there's a, a difference. I, I, something that I've really tried to, something that I found really excited about getting into the Paralympic world and, and especially in the United States now that it's really a combined Olympic and Paralympic world and having the opportunity to meet incredible athletes like yourself and um, get to understand what does you know, training in the sport of figure skating look like? What does training in the sport of wrestling look like? What does training in the sport of fencing look like? And how does that compare to my experiences as a swimmer and now as a triathlete? And then how do those things compare to the way that we train in the military? And I do think there are more similarities than differences. I think the similarities are the intensity, the stakes. I think, I think there's a lot of commonality in uh, Olympic, Paralympic athletes and military members, especially special operations members, where there's just this really high intensity to every day of training. And if you wanted to be an Olympic or a Paralympic champion, you know that every day at practice is of critical importance. You can't throw away a day because the day that you throw away is the day that your competition gets an edge, right? And on, in, the, in the military context, you know, the, a lot of the consequences of what we do is, is potentially lethal. If I do a bad job at my job as an EOD technician in Afghanistan, myself could get really hurt or one of my teammates could get really hurt even worse so the the the, uh, the intensity that we bring to every aspect of our training is of critical importance and i would say you know especially in, in in today's modern context as an athlete it is very by its nature interdisciplinary there's much more focus on the notion of recovery you know my my high school coach would have never have gotten into not, I wouldn't have gotten in trouble for sleeping too much back then, but now it's a really big thing, right? The amount of sleep that you get is a, a critical component of your your training regimen, the amount of time that you spend in the mobility context, in the strength building context, your technique versus your endurance, and all these different aspects of your training are all critically important, and that's the way the military looks at it. It's very interdisciplinary. There's a lot of different things that I need to know, whether that's my small arms training or my communications or the way that I carry my load or my 
explosive mitigation techniques or chemical chemi- chemistry. Like we have to know how homemade explosives are made or how chemical biological hazards are utilized or nuclear hazards for that matter. So um, the, the the similarities are the intensity and the sort of interdisciplinary nature. The differences are really uh, can, can be superficial. The sort of the, the tactical nature of the two, um, the environment. Uh, and I would say there is a there's a difference. Any any time that you're saying that the consequences of your actions are lethal, there's just a there's a difference there, and that's really inescapable. And that isn't just you know, the the military doesn't have a monopoly on that. That's doctors and surgeons face that sort of consequence, and that just adds a certain level of intensity that even the Olympic Games can't really replicate. But it gets it surely gets close, I think. So I guess that's a those are the comparisons. I I think. That makes me want to follow on with a question about nerves. I always remembered being just so nervous before competing in an Olympic Games where I would be trying to to rest and close my eyes and my heart would be beating so violently in my chest. It would shake my whole body and I felt like there was battery acid running through my body and I was just weak and and it, and I'm curious to what the nerves were like when you're preparing for a critical mission or, you know, you, you're kind of in this situation where every every decision, every thought that, you know, you have to make in an incident will mean lives saved or lives lost. And how you compare the nerves you might feel competing in the Paralympic Games versus the nerves that you that you experience when you are on tour. I think that they're very similar. Uh, but for me... You know, for me, the the nerves always got to me where I, when I couldn't, I didn't have anything I could control. So, like in combat, the nerves for me were always the worst, and the helicopter ride to wherever we were going because I'm no, I'm not in control. I'm just on the helicopter. I've I can think through what's going to go on and where we're going to land and what I'm supposed to do, but I I don't have anything to do to occupy myself. And it's similar to the ready room, right? You're just kind of waiting for your chance to go and. That's probably the worst. I have to imagine it's just sitting there thinking about, well, here's all the things that could happen. Here's all the things that might happen. And what if I did this? And did I do enough? Did I do enough training? Did I bring enough gear? Did I do, you know, you have all those questions. Once I could get both either on the battlefield, you know, you step off the helicopter and you start doing something, you start controlling your reality, then it, then it all seems to go away. And the same thing with the Paralympics. I remember for the races that are long enough, you know, sometimes I don't always have an awareness in the 50. The 50 is over so quickly. The 100, definitely, there's always a moment where I'm like, I'm in it. Like, I'm I'm doing this. I'm in the middle of the pool. I'm in the middle of the arena, and I'm going really fast. And this thing that I've visualized so many times is is coming true, especially in Rio. Uh, having uh, the second games, the second time to go through all of that, I definitely had so many moments where I kind of just smiled to myself, like, this is it. This is the thing that I've been training so long for. And I did have a, a recollection of this is this is the moment. I'm very happy about that, not nervous or uncertain. I was very happy about that. So I I kind of I like the the arena. I don't like the anticipation. Uh, and I the the way that I work to sort of get yourself to that that optimal moment where you're 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 excited and thriving in that in that particular moment is to you know remove all doubt. Uh, in in London it was kind of scary because I was just like riding a, a lightning bolt. I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know what my potential is. I don't, I don't even, I'm not even, I've not even been blind a year. I don't know anything about who I, I don't even know who I am. I don't know if I deserve to be here. It's much like the, you know, even though I was you know, 28 at the time, I, I didn't feel 28. I felt like I was 12. I felt like I just, just had so many questions about what was supposed to happen. And I was a lot more nervous then, I think. And it's really, I feel very lucky that everything turned out the way that it did. Rio was like 180 out from that. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had practiced every one of my races down to the stroke. I knew exactly how many strokes the 50 would take me. I knew how many, exactly how many strokes the 100 would take me. I didn't have a stroke count for the 400, but I knew how every lap was supposed to unfold. I had a strategy. I knew the preparation. I knew that I had done all this strength training. I was stronger than I had ever been. I had gotten the right rest. You know, I, I'd had a plan. I had visualized it so many times that I just knew the second that they they that they push on that buzzer, I'm going to be in control and on top of my reality. I had no doubts. And so that's what I try to say about that's the importance of the day-to-day training is you're not training just to, you know, increase your lactic threshold capacity or something like that. You're training so that 
when that buzzer goes off and it's your moment, you know, you have no doubt that you're the most prepared person in that pool or on that ice or on that field. You know, that's why day-to-day training is so important is remove all that doubt, I think. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think I, I completely agree with you in the waiting, right? Because you feel you feel powerless. You run through every scenario of yeah. everything that could go wrong. What's going to happen? The next 10 minutes will change my whole life, and I'm just here <laughs> waiting. So your yep. mind can tend to run without you. But as soon as you're doing something, it helps to alleviate the uh, overactive mind. I remember my strategy would just be to verbally walk myself through exactly what I needed to do. So if it right. would, if it was putting on pants, it's like, Sasha, all you have to do is put on your pants right now. Um, yep. Now you just have to put on one skate, or now you just yep. have to do this. Now you, all you have to do is walk to the other end of the hall. And that that helped to contain the nerves and, and keep me in the moment instead of running ahead to how my whole life would be determined by what happened on the ice in the next, in the next few minutes. So now you've, you've been to two Paralympic Games. You've You've earned five gold medals, two silver medals, and you have a world record in all of these. And this is your second career as a as a U.S. Paralympian and in in swimming. And so, I guess that that seemed too easy. And now you're you're trying your hand out at at um, the triathlon. Can you tell me about how you decided to make that that shift? And and you're gearing up for Tokyo. That that's a year less than a year away. Yes. I wouldn't say swimming was too easy. I just think I just needed the challenge to evolve. I think, you know, it's, I, you're, you're right. I'm a second, this is my second career and I've been in this sport since I was 11 years old. So I'm, you know, 30, I don't want to say how old I'm 35 now. So I've been swimming for 24, 25 years. It's a long time uh, to swim back and forth in a pool and end up where you started. Right. So I feel, I feel like um, when I ret- retired from swimming, you know, when I, when I finished collegiate sports, I thought I was done swimming and I moved on to all kinds of weird things from adventure racing to triathlon to CrossFit. And I was doing that for a long time. Uh, I've, I kind of always knew when I stopped Paralympic swimming, I would, there would be a new challenge waiting for me. And paratriathlon is a really well run, uh, you know, a Paralympic program. And I had enough friends in that environment, you know, uh, Melissa Stockwell and Alyssa Seely, who, re- you know, reached out to me and kind of, I asked them a few questions, what's this like? And is this a place that I would fit in? And they were very welcoming and brought me into the fold. And it's been a struggle. It's been, it's way harder than I thought it was going to be. I don't know if that reflects my arrogance or overconfidence or whatever, but I, it's been a, it's been a, re- a really great challenge, but a, a really gratifying one. And I think uh, I I just needed the challenge to evolve for Tokyo, and and I'm world ranked number eight now. So definitely not a, a favorite going into the games. Uh, I've got world championships coming up in a couple weeks, and I'm scrambling my way up in the rankings. But if I can stay more or less where I am now, I should have the opportunity to race in Tokyo, and I'm really excited about that. It's a it's a different it's a different way of going about it. You know, in Rio, I really wanted to just absolutely master. The freestyle events. I wanted to break that world record. I, I really wanted to just optimize stroke for stroke. And now I'm in a sport where it's it's very much more. It's like a chess game. There's strategy. There's variables that people don't control, and any race can unfold any different way. Uh, and and there's a lot of complexity to it. So I like that that idea that it's I'm not just going to replicate the same 50 I've done over and over again. You know, when the gun goes off in Tokyo it's anybody's podium and everyone's going to scramble for it. So I'm excited to really, uh, I'm really hopeful that I'll have the opportunity to do that and really excited about that. And I may end up doing a swimming race here and there too. That's also in the, potentially in the cards. So I wouldn't rule that out yet either. Well, we'll be, we'll be rooting for you um, along, along your journey to, to Tokyo and, and hopefully in, in Tokyo as well. And you have a unique history in the sense that you've already had to transition so young and give up an identity to relearn life again with without vision to to leave the military and to to enter into the world as a as a, an incredibly successful paralympian and and I wonder what you see this next transition because whether we like it or not as athletes we we do tend to have to retire and oftentimes before we want to and and I, I know that 
many athletes that I've had on the podcast and that I've I've spoken to, it's 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 been a big struggle because our whole identity is wrapped up in this thing that we've done every day since we were a child. And then at the age of 20 or 25, it's we're we're the old horse and and there's the you know the new ones pushing us aside and all of a sudden we were homeschooled and we don't know what else we are good at, let alone what else we like. And and then we we try to figure it out. And and it seems like you're definitely not in that camp. You know, you said you've got a master's, you're getting a PhD. I just read that you're teaching a leadership course at the Naval Academy, which is yes. incredible. And I want to hear more about that. But I, I really want to know how you see your life evolving when you decide to retire from your incredibly successful Paralympic career. Well, I appreciate you saying all those things. And I would say uh, maybe... I'm doing a better job of making it seem like I know what I'm doing, but I really don't, to be honest with you. And I think uh, I, you're right. I, I, I did have to go through that big transition in 2012 post-injury and really figure out how to adapt my life to not having my vision and, and moving away from the military. And, and that for many folks, I'm sure you've, you're in your experiences at Columbia speaking with veterans, it's really hard to go from having the capabilities that we have uh, as, as, as operators in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, having the, the power that we have to having the relevant mission that we have and the, the perception that we're having an impact on a global level and then move away from that and go into a space where, you know, maybe you're a, a sales associate for an energy company or something like that. And it really doesn't feel like you're as impactful as you once were. And it's a, it's a big deal. Um, I would say in my case, uh, it wasn't... I got really lucky on two on two accounts. One, I didn't choose when to transition. Like I didn't mean to step on that IED, and that that was a you know it's a the choice was made for me. And then I had the opportunity to move into the Paralympic space really quickly. Where and you know this as well as I do, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a wonderful space to be. It's sort of addictive. Like I go and I do these races, and uh, I'm I'm good at it, and people love it, and I get to go onto this big platform and it's really awesome. And then I get to go and share my medal with folks and that's really great. And all of a sudden now, before I really had to think about it too much, I had a new identity for myself. I had a place in the community that was valued. Um, but uh, like you said, eventually, and I think all of us know this, eventually that's going to go away. I mean, once an Olympian, always Olympian, once a Paralympian, always a Paralympian. And, and, and to some extent that that's true, but you know, this as well as, you, as, well as I do, Eventually, that name starts to fade, and there's a new, there's a new phenom. You know, there's a new Simone Biles, or there's a new Michael Phelps who's going to come out of the woodworks and really just shock and all all of us. And and that's great, and that's healthy, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But what do what do we do now? Um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of value in the conversation we had about the sort of universal applicability of the skill set. You know, like we talked about the similarities between the training of the military and the training of an uh, Olympic or Paralympic athlete there are a lot of similarities and there are a lot of things that you have as an Olympian that I have as a military member in that there are these core virtues that we've developed in our sporting backgrounds or in our military backgrounds that are of immense value uh, in the private sector. This uh, dedication, this uh, kind of punctuality, this understanding of how to put things in a broader context, the, uh, you know, the understanding of how to serve something bigger than yourself, especially a member of Team USA understands that, you know, you're your part of the puzzle is a, a small part of a really big global movement and being able to contribute that to a, a, a company is a really great thing to be able to do. So there are these, you know, these, these components of our identity that are independent of our application, whether it's military, the Olympics, Paralympics, or our endeavors that, uh, that are, that are, that we have to find deep within ourselves and start to wrap our identity around those things as opposed to the superficialities. Um, but I still think it's really hard. I'm having a hard time leaving the sports world for the same reasons. I feel like a lot of people perceive me based on that narrative we talked about. People kind of like, when they hear their name Brad Snyder, now they think of blind Paralympian. And while I'll always be blind, you know, the, the Paralympic thing will, will kind of go away after a time. And I need to be able to fill that void. And I'm not 100% sure what to do with that. And I did, I had kind of a post-Rio depression. I felt like I had really done everything that I'd wanted to do in Rio. And I felt like once I got there, once I was a gold medalist again, and once I had gotten that world record, like a lot of my problems would be solved. And I kind of finished the games and didn't really know what to do with myself. And I thought, well, you know, I could go around telling the same story indefinitely. And 
there's, there's opportunities there, but I, I don't know if I want to do that. I want to, I, I need the challenge to evolve. I need to do something else. And thankfully, while I was sort of moping around trying to figure out what to do with my life, I met up with a friend here at the Naval Academy who was teaching. And I said, what a great gig. This is wonderful. Do you really enjoy teaching the midshipmen? He said, oh yeah. And if you're interested, we could, we could facilitate that. So uh, I, I'm really grateful to the alumni association here who gave me an opportunity to come in and at the beginning, it was just augmenting some courses, guest lecturing here and there, uh, you know, taking some of my experiences from Iraq and Afghanistan and making that relevant to the midshipmen here. But then I was able to teach a couple sections of the leadership courses. And now I teach in this really cool elective course called Code of the Warrior, sort of an ethics course about warrior cultures across time. And it's 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 given me a new vocation. So I'm cheating with my new transition. I'm not doing a straight up done being an athlete, got to figure it out again. I've started teaching. I've I, I pursued my master's as just from a, as a means to an end to stay here at the Naval Academy teaching in an adjunct capacity, but ended up liking it so much that I'm going to try to get a PhD in the next couple of years, with all with the intention of coming back here and uh, hopefully being a tenure track uh, professor here at the Naval Academy in the leadership department. Uh, so again, I'm cheating, but uh, I, I, that's what makes it easier to say goodbye in Tokyo, I think. The arc of your narrative is is so inspiring, and I just think you're the attitude that you exude, you know, you certainly deserve the way that life has unfolded and in, in the incredible opportunities and how you've turned things that could seem negative or hardship into these incredible beacons and, and ways that you you inspire others, not only other Paralympians, but just I think people in general. And and you've you've definitely got it it figured out, it sounds like in in your transitory process. This conversation has been incredible and it's leading me to the end to a few questions. What advice would you want to share with the audience about your own journey or something you've found essential in your life thus far? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because you were you were kind of wrapping up by saying, like, I've got it all figured out. And so I don't I don't think so. I don't feel like that. And I you know, even just today, I was pretty frustrated with different things. I, I have to take a GRE test to get into my PhD program. And the GRE when you're blind is kind of a complicated process. So I was really frustrated a little bit ago. And I sort of have to kind of coach myself. Uh, and I use this, a very simple sort of thing. It's a simple framework, but it's really big in the military world. And I think it's, it, it, it ebbs and flows in popularity, but it's just the stoic philosophy. And I think Sarah, my fiance, gets tired of me talking about stoicism because I talk about it all the time. It's a big component of the Naval Academy curriculum. Uh, a famous utilizer of this philosophy was Admiral Stockdale, who's one of the POWs in Hanoi and Vietnam. And he really attributed to the way that he was able to survive an ordeal like being a POW for seven years to this really simple tenant. And the, the tenant of stoic philosophy, the major, there's a lot of things that go along with it, but the major thing is control what you can control and learn to let go of the things that you can't. Uh, and you said something powerful sort of in passing at the beginning uh, about how there's like a choice. There's a choice in how we react to these external stimuli, uh, all the things that are going on in our life. And uh, the, you know whether you choose to be an athlete or you don't choose to be an athlete or you win or you lose, those are all things outside of you. And you can't always control. Like even if, uh, even if you have the race of your life or you have the routine of your life on the ice, you can't control what your competitor does. And, and maybe you're competing against a Tiger Woods or a Roger Federer or a, a Simone Biles or something like that. You, you can't control that. Um, so the, what you can control, though, is your reaction to those things. And uh, I, I kind of recommend that, uh, for, or I don't recommend, you, you do what you want to do, but that's what's worked for me, is really trying to use that simple framework uh, in, in all the aspects of my life. When I get really frustrated, I have to learn you know, you can choose to be positive, you can choose to be negative, you can choose to be a victim to the circumstances that you're facing, or you can choose to do something about it. And sometimes it's really hard to do something about it. Sometimes it's really hard to tackle the obstacle that's in front of you. But I think it's important to remember that there's always a choice. And you can always choose to be positive, you can choose to do something about it, or you can choose to fold. And I think my, you know, there's power in habituating that I, I'll, I'll never choose to fold. I can commit to that. And that's something that's really helped me. Have you read The Shortness of Life or Letters to a Stoic? I've read Letters to a Stoic, not The Shortness of Life. It's I think Seneca wrote that. It's another excellent, just excellent short book that I would recommend. Uh, and I'll I'll use that to ask you 
a book that you've read that's been incredibly impactful, whether it's a book that you've given the most to friends or something that you read that really changed your lens on life or your life philosophy? Oh, man, there's so many. Um, uh, it depends on a lot come to mind. I would say two that I really, really like. One's more classic than the other. Uh, well, first off, we should do a we should do a podcast on Stoic philosophy for athletes. That would be a really cool podcast. Let's let's put a pin Done. in that. I'll, but, I'll put in a few uh, words. <laughs> two books that I really liked, uh, especially in this realm, Boys in the Boat. Yeah, I think uh, if you haven't read Boys in the Boat, uh, you you got to pick it up. It's a phenomenal book, and what I like about it for for anybody who's a fan of the Olympics and Paralympics, it really just uh, it 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 just it draws a certain connection to this world and, and makes you feel really, really great about the power of the Olympic and Paralympic movement. I mean, it really has nothing to do with the Paralympics. I just get used to saying Olympic and Paralympic. But The Boys in the Boat is a great book. Um, I would also say The Alchemist. I know that a lot of people, uh, that's, that's a very common one to pop up, but I find that I like that one. So when you get really tired of stoicism, I don't, I'm not a big believer in... Uh, that we have preordained legacies. I like the idea of ownership. I like the idea that we are kind of in control of our own destinies. But sometimes I know we all hit this feeling like, ah, it's just really hard. It's really hard to be the one in control all the time. And maybe sometimes I just, I don't want to be the one in control. I don't want to have to be the one to make the choice. That's why I like the alchemist because it gives you this really sort of fantastical view on the omens there's a really great audiobook that's read by Jeremy Irons uh, of The Alchemist, and I really love that version, and he keeps talking about the omens. And it's, sometimes it's comforting to think, well, maybe, I'm, you know, maybe I am just along this path. Maybe I am just following the omens to this long-term legacy, and, and maybe that's okay. So I don't know. There's a comfort in The Alchemist that I find that's different than Stoics. I have to agree with you, and I think that a lot of athletes and very type A people have this this evolution and thought where we're taught that we are in control of everything, of our training. Yep. We can micromanage our schedule four years out, and it's up to us to seize the moment, to be prepared, to be mentally strong, and, and it's all up to us. And then I think as you mature and things happen in life and you lose loved ones and just random freaks of nature end up occurring, you kind of realize that life— that you don't control everything and life is a balance of making things happen and allowing things to happen. I think athletes and I'm sure members of the armed forces, are just, we have a hard time allowing <laughs> and, yeah. and and that that is our work. Well, that brings up actually another book recommendation that's really good. This one's not as approachable as The Alchemist, but it's the uh, anti-fragile book by Nassim Taleb. That gets into what you're talking about, this idea that Instead of trying to control everything, if you just control the now, if you just control this moment, this particular individual time, you can, uh, you can develop sort of what he, he calls anti-fragile. Uh, he doesn't like the word resilience, but it's essentially what resilience is, this idea that chaos is going to strike and to build up sort of armor against that. You just, you just have to know that it's going to happen and, and learn to adjust to the chaos that's in the world. His first book was Black Swan. That was a whole, I, I'm sure you're familiar with that in the finance world. But then he wrote Annie Fragile is sort of like the anecdote to the Black Swan. That that was a great book as well. And what I love about it is it's it, it turns the idea of weakness and strength on its head and, and gives a, a complete, a completely different definition. Is it's it's not only is this resilient, but uh destruction and turmoil will actually make it stronger. Yes, it's it's um, it's kind of uh, uh, I didn't watch the Avengers thing, but it's sort of like the, the bad guy in the Avengers, you know, like the uh, killing off part of the population is actually good. It's kind of unnerving to read some of that stuff, but I think it is it puts resilience in a different context. I think is a good, healthy thing. Certainly, certainly. And the last question I wanted to end with is, what is your Olympic or Paralympic moment in your life? And this would be outside probably of actually competing at the Paralympics, but it's something that I ask Olympians, Paralympians, authors, people that have never been in sports, but just really the kind of moment that you have when you're 
competing in front of thousands of people when you're standing on the podium where life just pauses and you have you have all these reflections, right? A very meaningful big moment. And I was wondering if there's something like that that has come up for you at another time in your life. Yeah, it's top of mind. So it's, I have to say it and I, it hasn't happened yet, but I've gotten really, really close to it. And I know when it happens, I'm going to be really, really happy about it because I've been thinking about it and sort of like orchestrating it. But I'm going to get married with Sarah here in a couple months time. And we had the, we went out to where we're going to get married and it's this really pretty place. And we went through the whole thing. And I have this image in my mind. It's an, it will happen, you know, everyone think happy thoughts. It's an outdoor wedding. So we'll see if that all works out for us. But I have this image in my mind of Sarah walking to me down the aisle and us being up on the altar and saying, I do to each other. We're going to do our, you know, we're going to say our own vows to each other. And I think that's going to be a really, I can see it in my mind. And just like the Paralympics, I've visualized it a, a thousand times. And when it comes true, I'm going to be really happy. I'm going to be really teary, but it's going to be a really cool moment. Like we love each other very much and we're starting this new life. And it's something we've both thought about a lot and, and put a lot of effort towards and a lot of thought towards. And we've been very mindful about it and planning that and, and executing on that. And then moving into this new chapter in our lives is going to be a really incredible moment. And it's something on the uh, on the par of, of being on the podium at the Amer- uh, or at the being on the podium at the Paralympics will be being at the altar with my my future wife Sarah. It's going to be an amazing moment. So I'm excited about that. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment and a perfect way to end. We'll all be cheering for you in this process up to Tokyo, and just so proud of everything you've already accomplished, and very excited to see everything ahead of you in the future and. And maybe I'll come down and, and audit your leadership class at some point. Um, it sounds very compelling. Definitely. Come down here and then we'll do a pod. We'll bring in some other folks, some smarter po- people on Stoics, but we'll do a Stoic podcast. That would be awesome. I love it. I'm totally in. Well, Brad, right. thank you so much. Good luck. And it was such a pleasure to get to speak with you for the past hour. The pleasure was all mine, Sasha. Thank you so much. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.